A reading from Paul's letter to the Colossian church, chapter one. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Nathan. I am on staff here at the church, and I'm so glad that you are here with us today. And uh, if you were here last year, you know that we took uh, over six months to go through the book of John, which is a uh, book uh, written by one of Jesus' closest followers uh, named John, and it's about Jesus' life. And uh, by the title that you see on screen here, uh, you might be able to figure out that we're going to go through another account of Jesus' life here uh, at the beginning of this year, which maybe you're excited about, maybe you're not, or maybe you're not interested in why I'm talking about this at all. But uh, let me explain to you why we decided that the past two years, these two years, uh, we want to begin the year uh, by going through the account of Jesus' life. And it's because we're Jesus' people. It's who we are. Uh, we are people, we are an entire community that are formed around Jesus. We're people who believe that Jesus is not only right about everything, although he is right about everything, we also believe he has the right to tell us about everything. We believe not only is he right, but he has the right, he has the power, he has the authority to tell us how to live. Jesus is not just the wisest person to ever teach about the human condition, although he is, uh, because his words, more than any other person, have formed modern, and by modern I mean in particular Western philosophy, Western political thought, theories on human rights, and what we would probably just call common sense, although it was not all that common when Jesus said it 2,000 years ago. It was not considered all that common when he said it. In fact, those human rights that we see as just so evident, they were not all that evident 2,000 years ago. But so much of what we believe about the world, even if you're not sure you believe Jesus is who he says he is, the way you think about life has been influenced by this man. And he not only has the most profound insight into human existence, we believe he is the reason for human existence. We believe he is God. And we believe that because of his death and resurrection, we can have confidence in this, and we can actually experience a new kind of life. And if we have confidence that he is the risen son of God, that he is the king of kings, that not only is he right about everything, but he has the right, he has the power, he has the authority to tell us how to do every part of our lives, then that has to change how we live our lives. Now, I'm not saying that if you're here today and you don't buy into all of that, that you have to buy into all of that. I get that's a very big statement. That's a very ultimate kind of claim to make. 
And maybe you're not sure you believe all we do about Jesus or the Bible or any of this. And I want to say that I think this series in particular, to start 2023, it would be one of the best things you could do to journey with us through this book. Because our hope is that throughout this series, you don't just learn some things about Jesus. We want you to experience Jesus in a very real kind of way. And I'm not talking about learning some kind of facts about the historical reality and the context behind the life that Jesus lived. Although I think you will learn those things. And I'm not just saying that you need to get some convincing evidence to some kind of intellectual questions you may have. Although I think you may end up getting all of that in this series. See, although we believe that the four accounts of Jesus' life, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we believe they are reliable historical sources. These are documents from the first century that are written about the life of this man, Jesus. We believe they are reliable historical documents. But it's important that you know these men, these writers of this, they were not merely writing news reports. They were not merely writing a historical textbook. They are not merely a historical document. Although they are, can be considered authentic, although you should treat them with the authenticity of a historical document, these men were writing these early accounts of Jesus' life to churches, to early communities of believers. They were intended to be just as pastoral as they were historical. They, and what I mean by that is they were intended to be something that could form you as a person. They could be something that could form a community around the life, the death, the resurrection of this man who claimed to be God. They are not meant to just be history that you read about and you learn some historical facts about. They are meant to be a thing that forms and shapes you because we believe they were inspired by God. What we mean is that God is at work in all of the recording of these stories in such a way that they would form not only individual believers, they would inform and they would form and they would shape communities of people, groups of people who could become like Jesus in this world that could love and could share and could treat one another just as Jesus did with every person he interacted with in this world. In our time, in the places that we live, we could actually accomplish God's purposes in this world. Now, today, my only goal is to get through the first sentence of the book of Mark. Now, you should know, because I told you we took over six months to get through the book of John, and you're like, great. Let me let you know. Uh, Mark is actually a really quick read. It's the shortest account of Jesus' life that we have. In fact, when I was in middle school, I had a youth minister uh, get up and challenge and said, you know, you can read, because the book of Mark's only 16 chapters, you can read the whole book of Mark in probably about an hour and a half. And he goes, but I know none of you students in this room will do that. And I sat and thought, I said, okay, big man, let's figure this out. So I went home, I went home that week, and I read through the entire book of Mark in one sitting, and I came back, I go, what's my prize? He goes, there was no prize. I was like, I will never trust this man again. <laughs> uh, uh, me and one other guy were foolish enough to do it. But here's what I'm telling you. If you went home, you could read through the book of Mark in one sitting. It's short. It's action-packed. We went through the book of John. The book of John is this intimate kind of portrayal of the life of Jesus. Most scholars agree Mark is the first, the earliest gospel that we have. And most scholars agree John is the last 
gospel that we have. And so what happens is Mark is this, is, well, let me say John is this kind of intimate portrayal. We have more words of Jesus, like actual speaking of Jesus in the book of John. John is very focused on what Jesus has to say. Mark is this short, action-packed kind of thrill ride where Mark is trying to keep up with all the things Jesus did. Jesus was active all the time, and he's just story after story. So just because I'm taking one whole week on one sentence should not make you think that's the way we're going through this entire book. In fact, we won't get to all the stories in the book of Mark because there's just so many. But it's okay, because next year, we're going to go at the life of Jesus again. So, we're going to get around to it all. But, here's what you should know. The reason we're going to start with the first sentence of Mark is because it is the central point of Mark's account. And it is the most important point I think I could make. So, let's just get to it. It is this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, right here... In this one sentence, Mark has made reference to things that for the early Christians, either the early Jewish readers or maybe the early Greek readers who are in a church hearing this, their ears would have pricked up on a few things that for us doesn't really mean much. First, if you notice, Mark begins his account honestly very similar to how John begins his account uh, of Jesus' life with these words, the beginning. Which, to all of the early Jewish readers, as soon as they hear the beginning, their mind goes back to the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's this kind of moment where Mark and John are both trying to draw people back to, it's like there's a new creation going on. Something happened in the life of this man, Jesus, that was so important, so revolutionary, so groundbreaking, it's as if the world started over. It's as if a new creation came into the world through the life, the death, and the resurrection of this one man. And we know that a new world did come in. That, that a new creation came. It's what Jesus called the kingdom of God. Or life with God. Life in the power and presence of God. He said, it's here. It's available. That in my life, the kingdom of God has come near. And so Mark is saying right here at the beginning, this is just as World shattering as if the world began again, all over again. Here he says, This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, that doesn't sound weird to most of us. If you grew up in church, you've heard good news in Jesus in the same breath as long as you can remember. Or if you didn't grow up in church, but you ever had someone knock on your door and say, Have you ever heard the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And then you probably rudely shut the door in their face. If you ever heard that, hearing good news in Jesus Christ in the same sentence, is normal for us. But it was not normal. It was not common for the days uh, of Jesus' original audience. The word we translate as good news is this Greek word, euangelion, which is where we get our word evangelism from, or the preaching, the proclaiming of the good news. And as scholars like N.T. Wright point out, uh, it was primarily used for emperors, like Augustus Caesar, who's emperor at the birth of Jesus that whenever there would be some kind of military victory, whenever there was some kind of imperial festival, like the birth of uh, Augustus Caesar, like his birthday, these Roman heralds, these Roman messengers, would come into town and they would proclaim, Evangelion, the good news has come. We're celebrating the birth of the Son of God, Augustus Caesar. They would proclaim because Julius Caesar, if you don't know, Julius Caesar had called himself God. 
And then he adopted a son named Augustus, and he was called the Son of God. And it was good news because it brought great joy to all people in the Roman Empire that there was finally peace on earth. That's the way they would proclaim it. Which if you ever have heard the stories of Jesus' birth, this is what the angels, the heavenly hosts, the heavenly heralds proclaim at the birth of Jesus. That a new king has been born. In fact, archaeologists have found inscriptions on ancient Roman buildings that celebrate the birthday of Augustus Caesar, who is this adopted son of God. And it says this, the birthday of the god Augustus, or as I said, son of God, as he's often referred to, was the beginning of the good tidings, or the euangelion, the good news for the world. Whenever anyone heard, this is the beginning of the good news, they knew you're talking about Caesar. You're talking about a king. You're talking about a ruler. And that's where this word from Mark's gospel, Messiah, comes in. Because for Jewish people, who most of the early Christians were, the word Messiah referred to this long-promised king of God who would establish God's kingdom, God's new world, all over the world. That God's kingdom would come to the world. In fact, you could just substitute the word Messiah or if you ever read the word Christ, in case you didn't know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means Messiah in Greek, or it means king. Whenever you read Messiah, Jesus Messiah, or Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, you can substitute in your brain for King Jesus. This is the good news of King Jesus, the Son of God. And so we don't miss this. Mark is saying, there is a good news that has come into the world. And this is the real beginning of it. It is that Jesus is king. The entire point of Mark's gospel, in fact, I think you could boil down the entire gospel to three words. Jesus is king. The gospel is not some abstract doctrine, some kind of theory on how you get into heaven after you die. It's not some abstract theory about sin and death in the afterlife. The gospel is a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. He is the only good news we need. In fact, a professor of mine, when I went back for a biblical studies degree, uh, my professor, Mark Moore, um, who is a brilliant guy. In fact, he wrote the book. He's one of those professors. He wrote the book that we had to buy. So it was like, you know, you got this great book you should read. Go pay me for it. You know, uh, brilliant guy, really smart guy. He wrote a book about the account of Jesus' life. And he points out that whenever the Romans would use the word euangelion, it was actually plural. It was the good newses. Because their idea was, there's a bunch of these good news going around. The Rome, Rome had a victory, and it's a good news is about this king. Because there's going to be another king coming along. And there's going to be another general giving another victory. There's going to be another emperor with another good news. And as far as we can tell, the Christians are the first ones to ever use euangelion as a singular noun. Because there is only ever one good news. There will never be another good news. And there will never be another king. It is the good news about King Jesus. And Mark is not only saying that, he's saying Jesus is the beginning and the end. That his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, they are the beginning of something new and the only thing that really even matters in this life. And so every story, every teaching, every detail Mark is going to write from this point forward, what we're going to be spending the next several weeks and months studying are to give us a better picture. He's just re-emphasizing this point, a better clarity, a better picture, a deeper experience of King Jesus. 
This is the same point that the Apostle Paul, an early church leader, made to a church he started in the ancient Roman colony of Colossae. This Colossian church was in a culture that was steeped in worship of the emperor in a way that is not completely foreign to the passion and zeal many people in our country have today around politics. So to this church, Paul writes, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Paul is saying, I know that everything in your culture tells you that all power and authority resides in the emperor and that Caesar controls the quality of your life and how secure and safe you're able to feel. Or to us, I know that every news network and every post on social media and every person you talk to seems to be convinced that every election, every vote, every bill or Supreme Court decision determines how good your life will be or how secure that your future is. But don't forget who the real authority is. Jesus Christ is the image of God. In him, all things were created including the power and authority that every throne and ruler gains their power from. Caesar doesn't have the final say. Neither do the Republicans or the Democrats or whoever sits in the Oval Office. Jesus Christ is the King. But Paul goes on beyond that. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Now, this is a huge statement, and I don't want you to miss this. Paul is not only saying that Jesus created all things, but that all things were created for him. He is the purpose of everything. Jesus is not just something that gives your life purpose. He is the purpose of life itself. Paul says, in him, all things hold together. It's as if Paul is saying that Jesus is the center of gravity for all things in life. Without Jesus, all things fall apart, which is what many of us have experienced in our lives. You see, although Jesus is the purpose of life, although he is the center of all things, God allows us to have free will to center our lives around whatever we choose. And whenever we center our lives on anything other than Jesus, we're just perpetually off center imbalanced. And so some of us put things like politics or our career or some dream or ambition that we have at the center of our lives and everything in our life revolves around it. And not just our time and our money and our energy, but our emotions and our mental health are based on how well we're doing at work or we get worked up when people don't agree with our politics. It's just off balance. Or if you're like me, you can tend to put another person as the center of your life, a spouse or maybe your children or a friend, and then we pour all of our emotional energy and all of our lives into this person. And we think this person gives my life meaning. And then when someone lets you down because they're human or they choose to leave you or they die and it feels like your life no longer has that purpose. But what most of us put at the center of our lives, if we're honest, is ourselves. Our lives revolve around us. 
And for some personalities, you make your whole life a self-improvement project. You've already got 17 New Year's resolutions and goals for 2023, and you've always got a new career ambition and plans for the future. And you'll actually accomplish them because you think if you don't, what's your life really worth? Whereas other personalities are just exhausted thinking about all of that and the center of your life is comfort and pleasure. Everything still revolves around you, but it's about having as much fun as you can experience or minimizing the pain or conflict in your life as much as you can. So every day, every meal, every experience has to be packed with as much pleasure and as little stress as possible. But inevitably, all of these pursuits leave you feeling empty and unsatisfied. There's never enough pleasure or enough self-improvement or a big impact where you feel like now your life matters or has meaning because you cannot be the purpose of your life. Jesus is before all things, meaning he is first in priority and in him, all things hold together because all things were created for him. The question isn't what is the purpose of life? The question is, will we allow ourselves to be centered around the purpose of life itself, King Jesus? Until Jesus becomes the center of our lives, our lives will always be off-centered because He is the center of, of everything. He's the purpose of life. So what's your life centered on? This new year often signifies a time of reflection. So I just wanted to give us some time to maybe do that together today. I want you to just to think back over the last year. Where did you feel the most off-center? Where did you feel the most pressure to keep everything together or to keep things from falling apart? I want to give you... A few moments to invite God into any areas of your life where this was true. So here's what I want to ask you to do. If you would, just try to sit up as straight as you can. And then I want you to put both feet solidly on the floor. Now I want to ask you to slowly raise your hands with your palms up and don't let your arms rest on your lap. Now, I want to ask you to try and keep those balanced uh, as well as you can as we take the next few moments to ask God to reveal to you the places in your life that are the most off balance. Let's take a few moments to do that now. Now, as you continue to keep your arms balanced, you're probably starting to feel a little bit of tension in your shoulders, a little bit of stress in your arms, and maybe a little tired. Would you just talk to God about areas in your life where you felt the most tension or the most stress or the most exhaustion over this last year? Take a moment to do that now.
Now, with all these ideas in mind, would you confess to God what you've been placing at the center of your life instead of Him? Where are you finding your meaning and your fulfillment? It's probably where you feel the most tension or the most stress or the relationship or the situation that you're exhausted trying to keep from falling apart. Would you just admit that to Him now? Now slowly let your arms down. Feel them relax and rest. And as you do, say these words to God. Jesus Christ, be my center. Do you feel the ease and the comfort that just comes over you when you don't try to be the center of your own life? When you don't try to hold all the things together, but you trust that Christ is before all things, holding all things together? This is what it means to have Jesus at your center. And so before we move on with our service, our band is going to lead us in a song that helps us give praise and honor to the King of all kings. And as you sing it, just remind yourself that Jesus is at the center of everything. Our lives find our purpose when we put him at the center of them. So if you feel comfortable doing so, would you stand and sing with us? darkness we were waiting without hope without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt
heaven held its breath till that stone was moved for good for the lamb it conquered death and the devils from their tomb and the angels studied on for the souls of all who'd come to the father of her sword Father, we thank you for Jesus. What a gift and a treasure it is to know him, to know you, to know life in your kingdom. May we never take that for granted and may we continue to pursue life with you at all costs. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So as we just sang, Jesus Christ is king and he is the purpose of life itself. And here's what I believe. If you will stick with us throughout this series, if you engage through these accounts that Mark recorded, you'll see why this is such good news. Because when we look at the life of Jesus, we see he is kind and compassionate, that he is merciful to sinful people who have messed up their lives by putting themselves or something else at the center. He is forgiving to those who have run after success or power or pleasure at the cost of their own integrity or at the cost of someone else. We also see that he is just and he is righteous, that he feeds the hungry, he lifts up the lowly, he cares for the sick and the poor. He defends those who are outcast and rejected by society, that he is not only kind, but he is good. He is right. He's powerful. He's mighty enough to calm raging seas and to heal sicknesses, to reverse the power of death. There is nothing that Jesus, that our God cannot do. But he is also tender and he is personal enough that he would welcome little children and he would share meals and laughter. He would mourn with those who mourn. And Paul would say to us in the book of Colossians, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, or as the author of Hebrews says it, he is the exact representation of God, or as Jesus himself would say it, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, meaning whatever we see is true about Jesus is true about God. God has always been like Jesus. That 
that Jesus is the clearest picture we get of who God is. Jesus is how we know what God is like because he is the image of the invisible God. But Paul also says that he is the firstborn of all creation, that he is the firstborn from among the dead. And that's weird language to us, and we're not sure you read that and you just kind of skip over it. But what Paul is talking about here is something he actually addresses again in the book of Romans when he says that Christ, and this is kind of a paraphrase, but he says that Christ is the true and the better Adam. That what Adam messed up, that what Adam was a pattern of, this pattern of sin and rebellion, where Adam had failed, and Adam not only means a person. Adam is also the Hebrew word for humanity. That what humanity failed to do, where humanity failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus is the fulfillment of what humanity was always intended to be. That God's original intent when he created human beings is that we would be his image in this world. You see that in the book of Genesis, that human beings were created in the image of God. And then when he frees the people of Israel from slavery, he tells them, you don't ever make images of me like every other nation does of their God. Every other nation makes idols and images. You don't make images of me because I've already made images of me. I've already made, you are to represent me to this world. You are to represent me to creation. But because we put ourselves at the center, because we sin, because we corrupted all of that, we could never live in this union with God. We can never rule over creation the way that God would. We ruled over it the way we did. How is that going? We ruled over other people. We ruled over creation itself at the expense of creation, at the expense of other people. But God is good. And so he sends Jesus to us to be the first true human being. To be the first true human. To be both man and God. There was no separation between humanity and God in Jesus. Fully God. Fully man. And then after his death, Jesus rose from the dead in a new body. And he said, this is a new creation. This is the firstborn, the first fruits of a new creation that one day I will bring to its full completion when I return. When Jesus Christ comes again to rule fully as the king of all kings. And Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of both creation and from among the dead of this new creation because he came before all things. But he is also the firstborn of this new kind of life, this new way to be truly human, to be truly a person, to truly care for others to love God, to experience this resurrection life of Jesus. That is the invitation of Jesus. Follow me and become like me. Become like me. Follow my example and my life, my death, and my resurrection. The invitation is to participate in this new world, this new creation that he is currently bringing about and one day will bring about when he returns. You get to live in this future world right now if you choose to. You can live as if peace is possible. You can live as if patience is possible because you truly do take Jesus seriously and truly believe he is the king of all kings. That you center your life on him and his teachings. And when you do, when you begin to live as if this life is possible because Jesus said that it was, you begin to experience this new world, what Jesus would call eternal life, the kind of life you will experience in eternity with God in the fullness of his kingdom. You begin to experience 
what Paul would call the first fruits of that right here and right now. You begin to find peace that passes understanding. You find joy that's unexplainable. You find that who you thought were your enemies were actually your family. You find out that forgiveness and reconciliation are beautiful things. And we become people who can live like Jesus in this world. We can react to heartbreak and disappointment and hardship with the patience and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. We can be gentle and humble and not make every moment about me. Not center everything on how am I experiencing this? What am I getting out of this relationship? How is this helping me? How is this bettering me? You can make your life a gift that you give away just as Jesus did. What you find is you too can lift up the lowly and care for the poor and the weak and the sick and you find out in the process that you receive more than you ever share. You get back more than you ever gave away. Because Jesus said, when you see the poor, when you see those, when you help those who are considered least in our world, you're actually seeing Jesus. And maybe for the first time, you're really seeing Jesus. This only happens when you center your life on Jesus. When he becomes the most important thing in your life, and he becomes what you desire the most. I don't remember who I heard say it, but I found it to be true, that we are more formed by who we love than what we know. We tend to think in our world, knowledge is power. Education is the path to a better life. I have found what Jesus said is true. Love is the most transformational power in the world. The most transformational power because God is love. And this is why you know this, because for many of you, the dumbest thing you ever did was because you really cared about someone and you knew it was wrong. You did what they told you to do. It's why your teenagers, you're always freaked out about your teenagers and who they're hanging out with, because you know if, if all their friends jump off a bridge, you're going to ask them, would you jump off the bridge? And then they go, well, all my friends just jumped off the bridge. What do I have to live for? Because you know it. Who you're with, who you care about, determines a lot more about the person you become. And this is why for some of you, you are sitting on the fence and you cannot fully commit to Jesus because church for you is primarily an intellectual exercise. It is, it is, it is this is your experience of church. You come and you learn some knowledge. You learn some facts. You kind of decide for yourself which teachings of Jesus kind of fit into making you a better dad or a better mom or a better parent or just a better neighbor. And you bring those things into your life. But Jesus is not really king. He might be a really good teacher, but you still kind of are at the center of all things. And that may be a great place to start for you, especially if you're not sure you believe all this to start trying to figure this out, and I'm glad you're with us, but to be fair to you, I just want to say to you, at some point, you are going to have to make a decision about Jesus. At some point, you have to make a decision about him, because until you do, you will always be the center of your life. You may put Jesus on the side, and occasionally you pray and you ask for some things, and he can orbit you, and when you need him to help you and get you out of a mess, he will. Or when you decide, hey, that teaching's pretty wise, so I'll do that thing, but this one about forgiveness, I don't really like it, so I'm not even going to try it. You're still the center of everything. Because Jesus, he will not be on the side of your life. 
He is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things and he holds all things together. He either is the Christ, the Son of God, the King of all kings, or he's not. But if he is, then he cannot be on the side of your life. He must be at the center, otherwise your life will always be out of balance. And my invitation for you this series is to investigate and not just investigate life with Jesus. Not like it's some kind of intellectual exercise and you will decide on your own. I'm inviting you to participate with him. Maybe for you that means you need to go to the next step center. Maybe what that means is you need to sign up for the next step class and you need to kind of actually figure out whether life with God in a community is actually possible because I think one of the reasons God gives us a community is because he knows we are more formed by who we love. And if we can get some brothers and sisters around us, some people around us who what they love most is Jesus, suddenly, as I learn to love them, I learn to love him even more. I'm drawn more towards him because this is the kind of love we are to have for one another. And there is something powerful that happens when I step into a community like this. And so maybe you need to get some people around you who can increase your love for Jesus. And we would love to help you do that. Would you go by Next Steps? center today. But here's what I know. Some of you have already gone to Next Step Center. Some of you have already taken a step into community and you've started to get some people around you and you've made a decision about the people at this church, but you have not made a decision about Jesus yet. You've made a decision. I like this community. I like what this community does for me. I like where it's going, but I'm not sure about Jesus yet. I want to ask you today, would you Would you start a conversation with him? And would you just say that to him? Would you ask him, hey, can you help me love you more? Can you help me put you at the center of my life? I remember one day, years after I started following Jesus, I just remembered this now. I remember sitting, I was working at an ice cream shop at the time. And I remember it kind of just hit me. I don't know if I really love Jesus. And so I just prayed to him, would you help me love him more? And over the last more than decade of my life, that is what's happened to me. And it just kind of hit me. I think he might have answered that prayer. And if you just say, would you help me love you more and put you at the center of my life, he will move. And if you do that, here's what I ask. Would you come to the Next Step Center, even if you've already signed up for the class, and just tell somebody, hey, I said that today. I'd love to talk with you about your journey with Jesus. But right now, I want to give you some time to talk with Jesus about this first. So I've invited Steve to come out and lead us through a time of prayer and to help us receive the meal of communion. Let's do that.